0: It ended up opening a lot of doors that I didn't necessarily think would be open to me. And I do think that if, if you do have language skills, keep them up, cultivate them, because I think those will prove to be equally helpful, if not more helpful than your law degree when it comes to Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay, all persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, for admonished to draw near and give their attention.
1: Welcome to the U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast, the legal English podcast for non-native English speakers to help you improve your English listening, improve your legal English vocabulary, and build your knowledge of American legal culture. Hi, this is Daniel, and before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that U.S. Law Essentials offers online courses in legal English and U.S. law. Our courses are designed for international attorneys, law students, and translators. If you have any questions, please contact Daniel at daniel at uslawessentials.com. And join us on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And now, today's episode.
2: Welcome to the U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Horowitz. And today we continue our series of interviews on the topic of multilingual lawyers with our special guest, Tanya Primiani, who is co-director at the World Justice Project, which is known for its annual publication of the Rule of Law Index. Uh, Welcome, Tanya. Thanks so much for joining this episode.
0: Thanks
2: so much for having me, Stephen. It's great to be here. Uh, Tanya has a law degree from University of Montreal and a master's in international affairs from Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, otherwise known as SAIS. Uh, and she's also fluent in Spanish, French, Italian, English. And if I'm not mistaken, Canadian too? You speak Canadian?
0: <laughs> that's unfair. That's not nice. That was not is a
2: good Is that a, I guess, is it a dialect? It's not even a dialect. I
0: can speak Canadian, eh?
2: Can you speak American? I guess that, that's a, that's sort of a dialect question, you know, too. Anyway. Okay. In addition to all that, and you won't find this on her LinkedIn profile, She lives across the street from me and has two boys who love playing soccer as much as my son does.
0: Which is a lot.
2: Which is a lot, right? (laughs) Okay, so Tanya, the the first thing I want to ask you is um, if you could tell me a little bit about your own language and cultural background.
0: Sure, of course. Um, So this is an easy one, and I really... Um, I know it sounds like a lot of languages but really I I have very little merit in learning most of them because I was born in a a multicultural family where my dad is Italian born and, and raised in Italy and then immigrated to Canada. And my mom is Egyptian and also immigrated to Canada in her 20s. So she she grew up speaking French and, and Arabic, and my dad grew up speaking Italian. And so when I was born, I spoke um, Italian with with my grandparents, who, who also immigrated to, to Canada at the time and had never actually learned English or, or French, which is a whole other interesting story, how basically you could live your whole life in Canada and not end up learning the language. Um So I spoke Italian with them as a, as a kid growing up. And my parents, I think at the time had read a book about language acquisition for children and had um, picked up on this, this idea of the child can learn as many languages as, as you want, really, as long as you can associate a parent or a person to the language. So they decided to split up the remaining two. So I spoke exclusively French to my mom and exclusively English to my dad. And that's basically how I kind of got all those three, you know, under my belt as an infant. Um, And then in school learning Spanish was the easy way out. I had the option between Spanish and and German and I chose Spanish because I was lazy and it it turned out to be um, probably the right choice because, because German is very hard. Um, I'm married to a half German now. So I know and um <laughs> and when you speak french and italian spanish comes easily although i think we've we've talked about this before it also can be a little bit tricky because there are a lot of um you know things that you think would be the same and turn out not to be the same so
2: oh you mean false friends
0: yes thank you i knew there was a word for that in english false
2: uh, false cognates is yes, uh, is exactly. one word but then false friends is the term that people like to use yeah like like embarazada in yes. Spanish, yes. which does not mean embarrassed. No,
0: exactly. I've had a few of those em- embarrassing moments um, in both in, in Spanish and actually also sometimes in Italian when I've used um, when I've used the wrong the wrong word. But um, so yeah, so that's how I learned those languages, and then I, I I studied a little bit of Arabic, and my mom spoke Arabic to her family mostly when she didn't want me to understand what was going on. So there was an incentive there to try to pick it up. But it's it's a very uh, very, very challenging languages. So I learned, you know, I can read and write, um, and I, I, I can understand very basic. But I've, I've basically lost over time what I had mastered because, you know, if you don't practice it, you lose it.
2: And, and you mentioned to me one time that you also learned Spanish living in Mexico.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I actually ended up in kind of a, a weird set of circumstances being an au pair to a Mexican family, which I think we, we typically imagine the, you know, this the scenario the other way around. But I was a Canadian au pair living with a Mexican family, helping with their, they had four kids. And so I, I lived with them for a while and, and came back to, to Canada speaking not only Spanish, but, but Chihuahuan Spanish, Mexican Spanish, which has a very, very strong accent um and so my my parents my dad especially who also speaks spanish was just laughing and making fun of me when i when i came back from that trip
2: (laughs) do do you still have that accent
0: no i lost it promptly i lost it i lost it promptly for better for worse
2: and and did you grow up i mean you grew up in montreal did you did you study in school in french or in english
0: yeah so I went to school. I did all my schooling in French actually throughout elementary high school i I even went to law school in French and um you know I speak English I speak English fluently obviously well hopefully
2: obviously <laughs> um although i barely I barely hear your accent, I barely hear it.
0: <laughs> but it i Until until I actually went to it's it's not it's not until I went to law to grad school that I actually started studying in English. And uh, up until then, I would even read, um, you know, I'm an avid reader and I would read all my books translated into French. So even just regular, um, you know, novels, I would I would read translated. But then I I went to grad school and I had to do a lot of reading in English. So I, I quickly switched over. But yeah, French was the language of most of my studies.
2: And so, so then, how did how did you learn English? Were you speaking English a lot at home, or where where were yeah. you speaking English?
0: I spoke it at home with my dad, and so of course I was I was comfortable in it. But I think when you study in a language, that's the one that you're, you're most comfortable reading and and writing in. So I felt comfortable enough in English to to speak it fluently. And of course, even though I went to a French school. In Quebec, we had English classes, and they split us up in different groups. So there were some of ours, some of our friends who had very little English at all, and so they were in the kind of you know elementary English level. And then those of us who spoke it fluently did more of the typical English of you know reading the Shakespeare and, and doing those things. But it was just a few hours a week, so it's not the same level that you would get if you actually studied in English.
2: And when you do math in your head, what language do you do you do it in, or can oh. you switch?
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely the one thing I cannot do in English. So I think once you learn math in a language, you cannot go back. So even with the kids, um, if we're if we're adding things or multiplications, I'll just always do it in French. And as a matter of fact, it's it sometimes it's funny because I'll be in the office, which is you know exclusively almost English setting, and I'll be with my colleagues and we'll be doing some quick calculations and I'll and I'll slip into French and they just. They they think that's quite funny, but I, that's the one thing I cannot I cannot
2: do in English. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, I, lo- I love asking that question to people because I realize no matter how much I think I've learned a language, I, you know, the thought of doing math in it. And and a, a former student of mine from Korea told me that one of the hard parts of the bar exam for him was um, contract law questions and the ones about uh, mortgage law or, or finance. When he had to deal with numbers, um, suddenly it, it slowed him down a lot. The processing got a lot slower of doing, doing it in English. So.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I can see that.
2: Now, when you mentioned your office, you're at the World Justice Project. Can you tell me a little bit about the World Justice Project and what it does?
0: Yeah, of course. So the, the World Justice Project is a small nonprofit based here in D.C., although we have offices in Singapore and Mexico as well. So we're a little bit international and really the goal of the the WJP or the World Justice Project is to Help uh, promote and um, encourage the development of the rule of law around the world, and we do that in different ways. Um, the, the main way is through our research and primary data collection that we do for an annual report that we put out called the Rule of um, the Rule of Law Index, and in that report we basically score all the countries, well, not all the countries. we're currently covering 140. but basically we look at those those 140 countries, we score them and uh, rank them on how well they're doing on various measures of rule of law. And then, you know, a lot of our other research comes from that. So we'll have reports that focus specifically on a country or in a specific theme like corruption, for instance, but always with the overall objective of promoting, and encouraging, um, you know, better rule of law around the world.
2: And and do you, are you functioning in a multilingual capacity in your work?
0: To a certain extent, yes. So, of course, the work that we do is in English, um, but there are certain ways in which languages are helpful. So, one is that we collect data from from the general population. So, we, we get people off the street to fill up polls um, and get a sense of their experience and perceptions about the rule of law in their countries and those surveys have to be translated into the local languages so of course you have all the languages and we don't do most of those translations but it does help if one of us on the team can review the surveys in French and in Spanish Um, and we also interview lawyers and we don't translate all those surveys in the local languages because we found that typically working with lawyers we can get get away with English in most countries but we do translate those surveys into the, the main other languages. So, we have them in Spanish and French and, and Russian and Arabic. And so, again, having those um, language skills on the on the team makes it, makes it easier. And then, of course, we try to disseminate our work elsewhere. And so, we'll often organize events in Latin America, um, and those will be in Spanish. I've done a lot of work in Western Africa. We were basically doing a lot of work with civil society organizations in Western Africa, trying to encourage them to use our data in their own advocacy efforts. And we found that especially when working with civil society organizations, you really have to work in their language. So we, we worked a lot in French. We um, we sometimes even translate our report in um, into Spanish, but in this case we um, we don't we wouldn't translate the report in in French. But it is helpful to have someone on the team can, that, that can present and do you know the actual work of connecting with with our stakeholders in in the language.
2: And did did you know that you wanted your career to be one where you were using where you were working cross-culturally and cross-lingually as well? How how did you end up in this career path?
0: Yeah, it was a little bit of a of a nonlinear path, I would say. Um I knew when I when I finished law school and after working in a law firm for a little while that I didn't necessarily want to be a, a lawyer, but I didn't know exactly what that next step looked like. And so when I, when I went to to grad school, I did choose a program, you know, like you mentioned, I went to SAIS and I did international relations. There was a focus there on both the kind of international um, realm and also languages. One of the things that you had to do in that program was, was learn a language. Um, So I did, I did see that as a, as a focus of mine and I didn't necessarily focus on the languages as a skill at the time, but I have come to realize now that it really is a huge asset when looking for jobs or moving from one job to the other, the ability to be able to, um, I mean, seamlessly, not exactly, but to work seamlessly almost in, in multiple languages is really a, a, huge, a huge asset.
2: Yeah, I, I can imagine. Are there, are there ever challenges to being multilingual or, or dealing um, cross-lingually or cross-culturally in, in your work or in your
1: career?
0: What, what I have found interesting in my experience is that, like I said, English is not my, my mother tongue. It's really the third language I learned. And I, I think I learned it, I, I became more comfortable in English much later in life. And so for a long time, I considered myself to be a francophone and, and speaking Italian fluently. And having been in the U.S. for a while and working primarily in English for a while, I now I now find that I, I struggle to do certain things that came very naturally to me before in French and Italian and Spanish. I struggle to do those now. So the, the way we speak in English, I find so very immediate and easy. And I find that very often now I struggle a little bit with... Um, translating certain terms that we use and translating translating certain expressions. There's just a lot of these kind of keywords or buzzwords that we use in English combinations of, of, of things that will just like, we put words together and, you know, just, stakeholder engagement we i mean it's kind of a cheesy example but like we use that a lot in our in our work or knowledge creation and i i've i've come to realize that when i when i have these presentations and i have these words in english that i, I need to translate into french or spanish it, they just don't sound right you don't have the the similar kind of easy two word juxtaposition you end up having to use kind of a sentence and a descriptor and it becomes very clunky and it feels a little bit um heavy so that has been challenging for me and just interesting how r- really I've, I've kind of embraced <laughs> English as my working language now and I think just generally when you start working in a language and you use a lot of technical terms you also realize that even though you can be very fluent in another language if you haven't studied that specific area technically in that language there are just terms that um, you're not going to know how to how to say even something as simple as rule of law. I have to remind myself how do, how do we say rule of law in, in Spanish? Um, so, yeah. Well, yeah how
2: how does it how does it translate in Spanish and French? Is it a direct translation?
0: It's the it you translate it by saying the state of law. So estado de derecho or l'état de droit. Yes, but it's not one that it's used quite as frequently as we would in English.
2: Right, we're very big on it here, and we yeah. like promoting rule of law. And there's—I right. know the American Bar Association has a whole rule of law initiative, which is a, a is a big thing. And and the U.S. government likes promoting U.S. rule of law. Right. Um, ah, so those kinds of terms are are tricky to to translate in yeah. in other. So how do you how do you translate something like stakeholder engagement? What does that sound like in Spanish or French?
0: So. In French, you would say "l'engagement avec les parties prenantes," which is basically a direct translation, um, but it's, it it feels a little bit clunky. Um, I have found that working—this is an interesting little sidebar—but I have found that working with francophones from France or Africa is slightly different than working from, with francophones in Quebec. Um, it the the French francophones will be much more likely to actually adopt an English word when there's no good equivalent in French. In Quebec, we have a bit of a, I'm going to say chip on our shoulder, but I don't want to get political, but we do have a sense of, there is a real desire to preserve the French language in Quebec that maybe doesn't exist as much in in France because the language doesn't feel under attack. And so in Quebec, we really We really struggle to um, create or use the French word when possible to refer to English concepts. So even, you know, sometimes in Quebec, they'll say chien chaud, which is a literal translation of hot dog, even though hot dog is a commonly used word everywhere. But in Quebec, they will really make a point of saying, no, it's not hot dog, it's chien chaud. Um, and so that's, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky because you really just want to use the English word that's so convenient, but you find yourself wanting to then um, actually say it the right way and find the French word, which I think is actually good. We we often just, and this, this is actually the case for anybody who's grown up in Montreal, bilingual, We we often end up kind of bastardizing both languages because you know that the person you're speaking to is, is equally fluent in French or English, and you end up just switching from one to the other. I remember that was very surprising to some of my friends here in the U.S. when they would hear me speaking on the phone or just talking to a Canadian friend the way we just, or a Quebec friend, the way we just seamlessly go from one language to the other without without thinking, even mid-sentence, just using a few words. And that's not, I mean, I think it's great in a way, it shows fluency, but it, sometimes it, it becomes tricky if you really want to be good about just speaking in one language and not and not boring words from another
1: yeah
2: I, I think that's common in in i've seen that in other speakers of other languages too like speakers from um china who are living here well i'll hear them or, or korea i'll hear them going back and forth even though they're speaking with somebody who speaks the same both you know the same two languages they'll just right. they'll switch back and forth which yeah. is maybe how sort of mixes or, or creoles or 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 other types of, of sort of language shifts uh, happen and evolve. okay let me shift the conversation a little bit now so you you studied law in Canada I did. Um, and Canada is also a common law legal system at least in part if not whole and it's also a federal legal system. Kind of like the U.S., but not entirely like the U.S. What's what's your ex, what's your perspective or or take on that since uh, since moving to the U.S. and 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 living and working here?
0: Yeah, so there are some commonalities, and I would say I think the official definition is not so much common law, but I think the word is bicultural. I think basically because we oh. have two systems, uh, common and civil law, we actually describe it as a, a dual system. Um, this being said really there's common law everywhere except for Quebec so that's Quebec is is the exception to to that rule but in Quebec we are governed by both common and civil law but all civil matters are governed by the the Quebec Civil Code which is basically the you know the descendant of the Napole- Napoleonic code. Um, so any kind of private matter civil matter, um, anything that's within the provincial realm will be dealt with in Quebec through civil law, typically. And then anything that's federal, um, so you're talking, you know, constitutional law, criminal law, um, what else? Intellectual property, for example, those things are dealt with through common law. So in most of the country, you have common law for everything. And then in Quebec, you have civil law for the civil code and then common law for anything that's that would be federal if that makes sense
2: and and how does canada deal with say um jurisdictional diversity um when it comes to let's see somebody from ottawa within a lawsuit with somebody from quebec and there's and, and i guess there's issues of language as well perhaps yeah,
0: so the uh, the language one is easy because Canada also has, in addition to having a dual legal system, it also has two official languages. So all our official documents, all court proceedings, anything that's official needs to be done in in both languages or can happen in both languages. Um, so, for example, any any legislation is enacted in both english and french which actually as an aside as a legal scholar and and a kind of someone who focuses on on legal language it was extraordinarily convenient because you know my civil code going to law school had a front and a back side to it and if i looked at it one way i was reading it in french and if i flipped it i was reading it in english and so oh wow you could just look up article 270 and you'll read it in french about you know civil responsibility and you flip it and you can see the translation in english so the technical terms the the legal terms you you have that immediately at your fingertips so that was kind of a fun, um, a fun experience. And then for your for the, the the second part of your question, I guess the jurisdiction it really depends on where things are being tried. But if the if it turns out um, that it's Quebec jurisdiction, then yeah, it will be it will be civil um, it will be civil uh, civil law.
2: And would cross would ex- uh, uh, would testimony on the stand in court be? I guess it would be in the preferred language of yeah. whoever's being asked the questions.
0: Yeah, people can speak in French or English, and then as as for any, I think most courts here as well, you could also, you people typically would also have uh, the right to a, a translator if if need be. But at least French and English, there's really no, um, you wouldn't even require a translator. It would just be like one or the other. You can kind of choose freely, which, whichever one you want.
2: So it sounds a little bit a little bit parallel to to, um, how the U.S. has Louisiana, which is the one state that has civil code. That's right. But, but without the extra wrinkle that in Louisiana people speak English, there's no issue of which language is is being used. I mean, right. I, I suppose some people could argue that the way people talk in Louisiana, <laughs> Louisiana might sound different, but that's just a that's more an issue of accent. Um, and and also I guess Louisiana is one of 50 states Yeah. Whereas Quebec is one of 10 provinces. So the impact of, of Quebec and its effect on the, and relations with the rest of, of Canada is going to have a, a wider area of, of impact than, than Louisiana does.
0: Yeah. Agreed. I think it does. I think it does impact just having a civil code and a civil system in Quebec impacts in many ways, the, the way, um, the way other provinces tend to do their common law. They're, they're common law, but they're almost a little bit tainted by by civil law, if that makes any sense. There is, there is oh. more of a codification of certain things than you would find elsewhere maybe in a common law system. Although to be perfectly transparent, I've never studied law in the U.S. and I've never actually worked as a lawyer here, so I don't know exactly how that would work. But Yeah, I remember our law teachers, and again, this is a while ago, don't want to date myself too much, but um, just saying that because it was a dual system in Canada, our common law even itself was a little bit, um, you know, a little bit influenced by, by the civil law system.
2: Oh, that is really interesting. I mean, I guess it's somewhat, no, it's not quite the same, but I was thinking California and when California passes a law about environmental regulations on cars, the rest of the U.S. kind of has to go along with it just because it's a big state with a big market. But that's a little bit different than what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you uh, one last question. What advice would you have for other multilingual lawyers um, or what advice has been helpful to you over the years?
0: Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I remember, so I went to law school, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And law school seemed like a good open option that would open a lot of doors. Um, and even at the time they had an expression in law school, which said in French, I guess, Le droit tout, like law leads to everything or anything. Um, it took a while for me to understand that to be true. It was a little bit it wasn't necessarily the case at first. I was like, does it really lead to everything though? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? But it ended up opening a lot of doors that I didn't necessarily think would be open to me. And I do think that if, if you do have language skills, keep them up, cultivate them, because I think those will prove to be equally helpful, if not more helpful than your law degree when it comes to operating in you know, in a law firm or anywhere else, um, finding your niche where those skills are really needed. I think that's really, for me, been a tremendous asset and a way that I have managed to distinguish myself from colleagues who perhaps didn't have those skills. Um, so that's been, yeah, a, a piece of advice maybe to those of you who speak other languages is just keep them up.
2: Oh, good. That, that is that is helpful advice. I wish I had kept up my, my Japanese and my Spanish a little bit better. <laughs> and let's finish up with one last question on recommendations. Is there anything you've been reading or watching or listening to or, or cooking or visiting?
0: Yeah. I mean, how much time do you have? Can we ex- expand this by another 45 sure. minutes? Sure. <laughs> um, no, I'll keep it quick. I, Phil and I... Uh, try to watch tv at night but i fall asleep but we recently started watching the second season of white lotus and i haven't i haven't seen all of it so i'm not going to say anything that's going to spoil anything but the thing i have found interesting is that it it takes place in italy and they have fantastic italian actors and as a as a native italian speaker one of my Pet peeves, if I can be honest, it's just when they when they have Italians on show that are clearly not Italians and they just speak a really bad Italian or super thick accent. And you're like, you're not fooling anyone. And these Italians are legit. They speak Italian very well. They are subtitled. And as an Italian myself, um, it's just a joy to to listen to. So it's been kind of fun. Although the show, I mean, the show is a little bit dark. So I don't know. I haven't finished it. So I'm not endorsing the show yet but i am endorsing the fact that um they are featuring some some very lovely italian speakers
2: oh that's good to know i would not have have known that um and for my recommendation i'm going to recommend something that i have not yet watched but which somebody else just told me about um there's a show i think on netflix called 1899 have you heard of it And it has something to do, it apparently takes some very bizarre, unexpected turns, something akin to Lost. But it starts off, it's set in 1899 with a bunch of immigrants on a boat in the ocean, and they they are from different countries so they're all speaking different languages which means you have to and sort of understanding each other and sometimes not understanding each other and you have to follow along with subtitles and to me that seems like a really um, compelling uh, type of of thing to watch and it it reminded me of that Japanese movie that won the Oscar or was nominated for the Oscar, Drive Mm -hmm. in which the, the main character is a playwright and he creates these plays where the characters are speaking to each other in different languages. So they're not even understanding each other, but then there's subtitles projected behind them. And it's kind of a device and that's within the movie. That's like plays within the movie. So um, this sounds somewhat similar. So I'm curious. So I'm going to watch that next.
0: Oh, that sounds cool. I'll I'll add that to my list as well. Once we can get through it, it takes us a while for me, you know, to get through a series.
2: (laughs) Yes. This is assuming that, that, either of us has time to actually watch anything. Yeah. Okay. Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. We'll include any relevant links from this episode in the show notes. Uh, I want to remind our listeners to subscribe to the U.S. Law Essentials, Law and Language podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also listen to all episodes on uslawessentials.com. And if you have any questions, comments, reactions, ideas, etc., we always love hearing from our listeners. You can contact us by email at daniel at USLaw Law Essentials.com or through the US Law Essentials Facebook group or LinkedIn group. Thanks for listening to US Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast and stay essential.